Welcome to the Senses of Cinema podcast for March 2018. I'm one of the editors at the journal, Mark Freeman, and today I'm joined by my co-host, writer, academic and programmer, Eloise Ross. Hi, Mark. And in our rotating third chair for this month, we've got our wonderful friend, Craig Martin. Craig, tell us what you do in the world of screen culture. Sure. I'm a scholar, a teacher, and I do research on uh, monster children in film. And... That's one of the reasons why we've got you on. We're going to spend some time with some terrible, awful children. (laughs) Sounds like a good time. I look forward to that. On today's show, we're going to be talking about Alex Garland's follow-up to his incredible debut, Ex Machina. His new film, Annihilation, follows a squad of scientists investigating a mysterious shimmer that is slowly spreading across the coast of Florida in the United States. And then Eloise has an exclusive interview with film innovators Soda Jerk, whose latest work, Terra Nullius, is opening across selected venues across the world in the coming months. And then in our third segment, we're going to follow up on our discussion of Annihilation and explore the controversial decision made by Paramount to release the film internationally on Netflix rather than emphasising a global theatrical release. Then we will end our show, as we always do, with our recommendations for the best thing we saw in March of 2018. And, as we've maybe already alluded to, in our bonus segment for our patrons this month, Eloise and I are going to be talking to Craig about his research into the monster child or the evil child trope in cinema, its evolution throughout film history, and how Richard Donner's key film, The Omen, plays with these concepts of pedophobia. So let's get things underway. Alex Garland's Annihilation is an adaptation of the first book in a trilogy written by Jeff Vandermeer. It tells the story of a mysterious, possibly alien shimmer that is slowly growing across the coast of Florida. Previous military incursions into the shimmer fail to explain the phenomenon, primarily because no one has ever returned alive, with the exception of Oscar Isaac's character Kane, who is on the verge of death by the time he does return to civilization. So, led by Dr. Ventress, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, and Kane's partner, Lena, played by Natalie Portman, a team of scientists venture into the Shimmer to see if they can succeed where the military have failed. What they find is a mixture of intense horror and a disturbing, fecund beauty. I'm stating right here and now that I am completely blown away by this film. Eloise, do you share my undying admiration for this film? <laughs> um. I don't, and it's really oh. unfortunate. And I, I will, will save some of this discussion for our third segment where sure. we talk about the straight-to-Netflix um, fate of this film. But I feel like I could just simply not avoid the fact that I was watching it at home, even on a big television, and that that significantly um, ruined the experience of the film for me. I mean, as a, as a science fiction um, experiment, I kind of... Loved it. Like it uses that classic trope of the a woman who was grieving through the loss of her husband that a, a whole bunch of not just sci-fi but other genre films use. Um, and uh, from that, you know, trying to get us to get both into her grief and then into her exploration of the world. And I really, you know, like that as just a simple trope. And then the film kind of goes in a whole bunch of directions and I don't even know where or how it gets to them. Um, but I, I love this whole really intellectual kind of sci-fi exploration stuff. I just didn't, I couldn't get into it. it there was, it was too, and I, this is not a criticism of the film, but basically it's kind of a big tonal mess, which is glorious. 
um, you know, it kind of is really slow and then is really loud and then is has really incredible um, sequences of dialogue and then sequences of of silence and, you know, sound effects and just pared back everything. And as an experience watching this at home, it, it ruined it. It ruined what okay. could have been this glorious thing. And, and so uh, I, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. That's just where I sit right now. I wasn't immediately in love with it. Um, Craig? Uh, I really enjoyed it, is what I want to say. Um, uh, I guess first off is the performances were incredible for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it left me guessing all the way through. And that ending, which I'm not going to spoil, um, just um, had me going, wow, Kubrick all over again. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. See, I mean, where it sounds like, you have disliked perhaps that mishmash of tones and styles. That was the thing that I loved the most about it. Mm. I absolutely loved this to tiny bits. Um, so I watched it two nights in a row. I had to go back and watch Amazing. it all again. Yep. Um, and I think one of the, the great advantages, at least for me, for that film, is that because the film is dealing with this idea of genetic mutation and the splicing of different DNA between species. You know, there's a a sequence very early on when they first go into the shimmer and Natalie Portman is looking at this flower that has different kinds of flowers on it and different leaf structures and she realises that they're actually all on the same branch, that they aren't different plants, they are the one plant. And that is sort of how I felt that the entire film was constructed. For me, I mean, Craig, you're saying that it was Kubrick and it was, but it also was not Kubrick. Mm-hmm. It was Kubrick, but it was also John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm. And, you know, there were kind of elements almost of a kind of Tarkovsky sort of thing in there. There were elements of, um, you know, creepy old house horror movie in there, that it was a whole range of quite disparate genres and film references that were combined together to make something that was like this perfect mashup. So that the fact that it, you have those moments of intense um, violence and horror and then moments of complete silence and then these kind of really intellectual ideas that are, are broached in series of dialogue, um, but then also things that are just really, really easy to cotton onto and understand. That was what I loved. I loved the fact that it was like he was the structure of the film, the tone of the film, the look of the film was as hybridized as, as its actual kind of thematic concerns. I agree with you. And I'm, I'm not saying that I didn't like that kind of yeah. mishmash. I just couldn't, couldn't get into it yeah. in that format. I mean, I do adore a lot of those things that you've mentioned. Um, and all of that stuff, I don't know if we're going too far into like spoiler territory, but when one of the women, one of the four women, um, on this expedition is killed, um, essentially killed. But then there's a moment where we think, oh, is it an unreliable narrator? Because Natalie Portman's um, honesty is questioned. And I thought that was really fucking awesome. That moment where we think, okay, it's Natalie Portman. Like she's classically someone who we align with and we trust um, in other films and as a star and also in this film. And then that's kind of undercut. And that was really, really cool. Um, and then this woman who has essentially died, her voice is trans transferred into this bear, this weird mutant bear, and 
they try and explain it afterwards. And one of the characters, I forget who, um, Josie. Um, the Chester she's, Thompson character. Yeah. Yeah. She's talking and she says that, that the woman Cass had not quite died and her final moments were being experienced in this awful place where she was kind of having to scream from within the monster that killed her. Yes. I mean, that stuff was amazing and yes. just kind of punched me in the gut. And that, I thought, that, wow. That sequence is one of the scariest things that yeah. I've seen. Yeah. Because it wasn't just scary, you know, that there is a sequence where this bear enters and it starts making these unholy sounds replicating the, the sounds of you know, a woman that has died. And, and and in terms of spoilers, I mean, it's worth saying straight up front, the very first scene is Natalie Portman telling you who dies. <laughs> so so in right. terms of spoilers, yep. literally that's almost the first scene where she says, this person's dead, I don't know what happened to this person, this person's dead. Mm. So in terms of spoilers, like that, that's not a thing for, for people to be upset about. It's literally in the first scene. Um, and the experience is... is- like uh, intense enough that yes, that and, and it is not doesn't matter. Yeah. I, I found that sequence so terrifying. Like I was watching it late at night. I was thinking to myself, "How on earth am I going to go to sleep?" <laughs> because it was scary, but it's also conceptually frightening. The idea yeah. that that in this kind of crazy hybridized environment where DNA and experience can then be kind of bolted on to random other organisms is such a a frightening concept, but also in other scenes is incredibly beautiful. So I loved the fact that there was this, yeah, if you throw DNA together, you might get the horrifying bear with only half a face making these terrible noises, but you also get, you know, the images of those little kind of deer things Mm. that have um, flowers for antlers, which is just an incredible image. Mm. Um, Mark, piggybacking on what you were saying before about Tarkovsky, about Kubrick, about Carpenter, uh, one of the things that um, that inspired me to think about was Stranger Things. And yes. the film has a lot of uh, that aesthetic about it in terms of mishmashing all these things together. Mm-hmm. And so that sequence with the bear is very uh, alien and Ridley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. And even, you know, towards the end uh, when we... The, the, the premise is it's a journey towards a lighthouse, which is kind of the... The, the origin of this shimmer and the idea is to try and investigate this lighthouse and uncover what, in fact, what has happened. But there are sequences in there that are straight out of Alien. Um, and, I, I also thought of Alien, yeah. yeah. You know, there, there's a, she goes through a kind of hole, a portal, and, and enters into this kind of alien landscape, alien as in the film. And, you know, I, I loved that sense that it was this kind of weird mix of influences from quite disparate films and yet, because the entire film is about the idea of hybridity, that all of that seemed to make sense. And it wasn't mm. like just looking at some filmmaker that was just grabbing ideas and throwing them together because that would be awesome. That it was thematically uh, bound by the very thing that they were investigating. And that even extends to the, to the soundscape, which you know we were talking about earlier before we went on air. That even the sound is kind of this mixture of kind of synth pop and folk mm. rock and you know that that the first time that folk song appears is so weird you're like what is this some is this a, a soap yeah. is this a television soap kind of yes. thing and i loved that and that it was reused again later on and that it just became kind of it, it 
wore these different things that it was doing, um, yeah. you know, um, very obviously. Yeah. But I, I really appreciate and really love films that do this kind of thing where they um, make quite obvious, like the uncanny doppelganger kind of thing. I mean, that that trope in films just uh, um, really amazes me and I love it and I, I find it fascinating. And that thing from the very beginning, I mean, I kind of thought like, well, Oscar Isaac, when he first appears, he looks a little bit weird. Yeah. He looks like Antonio Banderas, actually, to me. <laughs> um, but then, you know, these sort of things start to happen and they go into the shimmer and um, this is me doing Science 101, but I typed Annihilation into Wikipedia and I, I read um, this one line, Annihilation is a physics term that describes what occurs when a particle collides with an antiparticle, yep. right? And, like, that's, that's yeah. both this scientific thing and then also thematically... Yes. Um, the theme or the theme and the overarching um, defining feature of this film, and that's really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and then you have this kind of interacting, not only with the characters where you're not sure who's who and the bear with the woman's voice, but, like, also the deers, these trees that are made of um, icicles. Yes. Um, and mm. all sorts of things like that. It's just embedded through the film. Yeah. yeah. And, and the kind of, you know... The, you know, I use the word sort of fecundity, this idea mm-hmm. that it's a place where things erupt and grow, this kind of hot, sort of moist place where fungi seem to just spring up all over the place. And, and I, I just keep coming back to some of the, just the, the images that Garland assembles in that film. Um, there's one sequence where we see a body um, that is basically almost turned into this mosaic on a wall um, as as kind of these mushrooms and, and various plant life sort of erupt out of the lower half of the body, stretching their head right up to the top of this wall. And it's this horrible, the hideous image, and at the same time is this incredible image of new life and beauty. And it was this, that was the thing, one of the other things that really struck me about the film, that it was ugly and horrible and, and horrific and yet also in, intensely beautiful that that I, I really adored. You were, you were mentioning the performances. That was the other thing I really wanted to Oh, Jennifer to Jason Lee. Let's talk about her. Oh, can oh, we God. please? So incredible. Isn't she? Um, the, the thing that I was most fascinated by, and, you know, we can certainly have a quick discussion about the gender issue as well because all of the, the scientists are, are women, uh, but none of that is denoted in any way. There's no kind of we are doing the feminist horror film. It's just like, no, we're actually women. I love that line that I think um, Lena, the, the Natalie Portman character, says to somebody. I think it is to Tessa Thompson. Uh, and she says something like, oh, so it's all women that are going on this expedition. And Tessa Thompson corrects her and says, all scientists. Mm. And, and, that's a, and that's as far as that discussion mm. into gender goes. Um, but it's an assemblage of all of these women who have a kind of star persona that we're a little bit aware of. So Jennifer Jason Lee has always been somewhat uncontrollable, I think, in terms of her star persona. She's always big. She's always a little bit loopy. <laughs> yeah, know? she's always kind of sarcastic, yeah. isn't she? And, and she's so withdrawn here. She's almost affectless. Hmm. She does this really deadpan, incredibly effective performance that is super engaging because she's not doing what you think she's going to do. And even Tessa Thompson, who's in Thor Ragnarok, where she's the big, strong, gutsy chick, 
you know, is timid and quiet and reserved. Mm. And it feels like Garland's also playing on star persona, you know, taking Gina Rodriguez from Jane the Virgin and t- taking the kind of sweet, innocent girl and turning her into the, the aggressor, essentially, out of the team. It's, it's just a fascinating approach to, to casting, I thought. Yeah, that's really fascinating um, to think what he was doing because he obviously, and he used Oscar, Oscar Isaac again as well from Ex Machina. And, yeah. you, you know, you have to kind of think about Annihilation in terms of Ex Machina and yes. what he's doing there with all of these sci-fi tropes. Um, using them and adoring them, but also subverting them. Yeah. Um, and that he's doing that, but even more so in Annihilation, which is why it's, you know, it's such an interesting film and kind of quite difficult to to talk about, yeah. to fall in love with or, or not either way, because it's just doing so much. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think deliberately it's doing, I mean, I don't want to say too much, but it's it's throwing everything in there. And there's so much to grapple with and play around with. Sure. Mm. The other thing I wanted to mention and I, um, is towards the end, so we've had an entire film of, um, you know, DNA kind of mashing and mixing and um, weird things growing from, um, you know, biological experiments. And then at the end, this cyborg, weird cyborg thing appears. Um, and it reminded me quite a lot of the... Um, Scarlett Johansson's alien um, underneath her skin, from under the skin. I I didn't mean for those two phrases to sound so similar. But anyway, um, it was descriptive. But, you know, this black alien, and also thematically in Under the Skin, she's this um, alien learning human qualities of sympathy um, from the characters that she meets and picks up and that she tries to um, destroy, but then learns qualities so that she cannot. And there's that interesting idea there of... Um, sympathies, but also, you know, coming into contact with other beings and what does that do to you essentially. Um, And it also reminded me of Maria from Metropolis. Yes. You know, who is also this weird cyborg in Metropolis who is part human and part machine. And so, um, you know, it's doing all of those, having all of those kind of experiments as well. And you don't know who Maria is and which one is the real one, for instance. It's been a while since I've seen Metropolis, but I love that um, yeah, Alex Garland is taking a whole lot of these really, really interesting ideas from film history yeah. and expanding on them and just, you know, yeah, as you said, Mark, very importantly, not just using them as tokens, yeah. um, but really experimenting with what they can do yeah. and playing, I guess, playing with the way that we understand them. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I just found it a fascinating film. Do you want to? I, I know there has been some, without giving away the the ending. There's been some concern about that final moment. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's that's the Kubrickian bit for me, yeah. because you know that's that whole ending is still a mystery for yeah. so many people, uh, including myself. Uh, and that high idea of you know time folding in on itself, about not knowing who's who and what's what, yeah. and is. Is fascinating. Yeah. Um, See, I feel like in that sequence that you're referring to, where you don't know what's happening, I feel like I really knew what was happening. I was watching every figure, and I'm like, I know exactly what's happening, but that final moment is like, no, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> you, you didn't, you know, and so that to me was what was really, really kind of frustrating, but also incredible that he did that. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to jump back just a little bit for a moment and just talk about um, the sort of oneric aspect of the film. There's this 
total dreamscape that reminded me enormously as I was watching the film of um, Peter Jackson's um, Lovely Bones. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and just, you know, these, particularly when you mentioned the, um, the crystal trees, uh, and I thought, wow, that, that reminded me of Lovely Bones enormously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just, and it sort of made you question, is this real? Is this not? Is this a dream? And that notion that you were saying before about this unreliable narrator. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, amazing. And mm. it is very, you know, I mean, it's, and the fact that this thing that is essentially quite possibly destroying the earth as we know it is called the shimmer. Yeah. Like it mm. has this beautiful, yeah. gentle name. Yeah. Um, and But the other implication of that is, yeah, it's destroying life as we know it, but it's creating different life. Mm. So, so it's not, I mean... It, Yes, I mean, I think Jennifer Jason Lee gets to say the line, like, it's annihilation. <laughs> um, and it is, but it's only annihilation for us. It's actually a birth for all of these other things. So, you know, that, that again was one of the things that I loved about it, that, yeah, it's almost like this terrible horror movie where we're all going to die. And at the same time, we're also going to be transformed. Um, you know, you yeah. can see the way that, you know, there are certain images where, human DNA has connected to um, plant DNA so that there are these incredible gardens filled with human plants, you know, these human-shaped plants where DNA has been restructured along a kind of, you know, a a physical human body shape, but it is plant life. And that becomes this amazing sort of memorial for people. Um, Just incredible. I just thought of this interesting prompt and we can just address it quickly because I um we kind of we have to wrap up this discussion I think but um, I could keep going you know yeah <laughs> do you think that this and I mean the ending of Ex Machina is also kind of open and can be read either as a positive future or yes. as like a, a death of of humanity yeah. but it's either a, a happy ending or or a devastating one and do you think that this that annihilation is more or less positive or equally as open-ended. I mean, Ex Machina is about um, humans destroying themselves and yes. this is about some scientific, um, as you say, birth possibly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know whether I read it as an optimistic or a pessimistic ending. I, I, I read it as this beautiful open-ended, now I want to see the sequel. There is a trilogy... <laughs> Um, so it is from a trilogy of books. Uh, so do we get number two? Mm. I would love number two. Uh, I don't think that we will because of some things that we'll talk about in the third segment today, but it, it felt to me like it was one of those perfectly beautiful, ambiguous endings where you are kind of, it, it's like more like holding your breath rather than actually feeling, I feel good about this. I feel terrified by this. Mm. I really appreciated how nature was reclaiming these places. Yeah. And so I, I saw it as very positive. Yeah. And even that horrific sequence with the bear, I mean, like it's a wilderness story in that yeah. regard. And, yes. and these people who are coming from civilization and returning to this place where they really don't have the tools to protect themselves. And so I thought that was interesting as well. And the bear is just obeying its, its mm. nature mm. Um, and as is the world. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. All right, so if you want to add to this very probably lengthy discussion of annihilation and there's plenty to discuss as I think we've already proven. Um, We'd love to hear from you. So head over to facebook.com slash senses of cinema and leave a comment there on our episode thread.
Dan and Dominique Angeloro formed Soda Jerk in 2002 in Sydney, Australia, as a two-person art collective that uses audiovisual sampling as a way of critiquing the politics and histories of screen culture. Their work is engaging on a visceral level, responding to visual rhythms on screen with a complementary sonic beat, but it also probes Hollywood's culture of stardom, dominant narrative style and challenges the nature of copyright in the arts industry. Their epic work, Hollywood Burn, from 2006, a 52-minute sample-based narrative feature, is perhaps the key response to these ideas in Soda Jerk's production slate, although are carried through in other cinematic art reimaginings, like After the Rainbow, from 2009, that reimagines Judy Garland's life through her films, The Time That Remains, from 2012, that haunts Betty Davis and Joan Crawford with tropes of the gothic melodrama, and their Astro Black series, whose episodes consider the politics of Afrofuturism and its ongoing legacy. In 2006, their video The Was accompanied the long-anticipated release of a new track by Australian music remix artists The Avalanches. The last time they had a significant Melbourne-based exhibition was in 2015 at The Substation, a gallery in Newport although their work has shown elsewhere at other events and spaces. In their practice, Soda Jerk consider time to be fluid, and while history and nostalgia inform their work, they are often decidedly achronological. Now, this March, they are premiering a new work at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, Terra Nullius, which they label a political revenge fable in three acts. This sees Soda Jerk return to the screen and sonic history of their home country. I sat down with Soda Jerk to talk with them about their practice. Hi, Dominique and Dan. Welcome to the Sensitive Cinema podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Um, now, firstly, I just wanted to say congratulations for um, well, making your work, Terra Nullius, and for its great um, world premiere on Tuesday night. Um, I was there and it seemed like a really fabulous reception. Wow. So that was really good. There were a lot of people there that I know from Melbourne, um, but I feel like also in the exhibition space at Acne will have a sort of get a wider audience um, and, yeah, really reach a lot of people. Um, and I think that that's what you're after, hopefully, with this work. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a few people have, well, quite a few strangers have reached out in the last few days and some of our friends that have been in the space have, like, sort of been in touch to say that, like, it's... You know, there's been a lot of people in there and they've been laughing and cheering and, I don't know, for us that's, like, the coolest thing to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. You're, so it's in an exhibition space. It's just, you know, you can kind of walk in um, and walk out, I suppose, whenever, like, whenever anyone wants to. But it is, like, it has a narrative. Your Terranalis has a narrative. It's a drama, as you describe it, in the um, little pretext so how do you, I mean, you can't really control it, but how do you want people to watch this? Like, if they just walked in halfway through, would that interrupt the, the rhythm of it? Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they can walk in halfway through, but we've also made um, the decision to screen it on the hour every hour. Um, and so our ideal kind of idea is that people will come in and see their work beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they want to see it, from beginning to end, halfway through to halfway through, that's also okay. But there's definitely an overarching narrative that develops and, and different characters reappear and and that kind of thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we've always been, like, super obsessed with narrative um, and sort of we're really proud of the architecture of this film and the way the narrative evolves over the three acts. Um, so certainly, as Dan said, like, our ideal would be that people would 
um, experience the work from the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. I, you know, one of your major things is that you you like to remix, and this quote from Hollywood Burn, this previous major work of yours, was we're fighting for the right to remix. Um, I just said that, and I'm imagining it in the voice the voice that you use um, when you when that that quote comes up anyway, which is um, making me want to see it again. But my point is, I suppose, how do you approach these longer narratives? differently to your shorter works, like Tap Hop, for instance, that only runs for two minutes? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, certainly Tap Hop is part of, like, a series, um, what do we call that series? The Lessons. The Lessons, um, which is very much about just bringing, you know, um, a small amount of samples, perhaps just two, um, into engagement and sort of intersection with each other. Um, so they're pretty different works from our longer pieces, um, as you've suggested. Yeah, and I guess most of our work is kind of this long-form cinema, so that even if we have these small works, they're often episodic and they fit together to make these kind of longer things. So I think right, in, most, a series, like, in a series, yeah. like Astro Black or um, even the Dark Matter Cycle, you know, we might have three separate works in the same series. So I think something that we're really most comfortable in is these kind of longer-form um, works sometimes and serial and as you say sometimes um within the case of hollywood burn and now terra nullius like our long films that sort of um have a have a narrative um i wanted to ask specifically about terra nullius um that all your works use found footage to engage with and interrogate things like collective memory via screen culture and via screen material um but terra nullius moves into an exploration of national mythology um, which you're very kind of upfront about. But it kind of, well, one thing that it struck me that in moving from like the voice, you begin with the voiceover of David Gulpalil and Ten Canoes, and then a lot of your other voiceovers are from uh, our white prime ministers. And I wondered, you know, that's kind of suggests some kind of colonization within the narrative itself. Um, but there's much more of that in the film. Anyway, I was just wondering the response from the Ian Potter Foundation to the work and to withdraw their um, support, or you can perhaps be more. Um, specific about what what that action was but that seems to have reinforced the urgency of interrogating this national mythology is that how you see it yeah absolutely um as you say the um certainly one of the um things we're exploring in the work is um sort of an idea of um uh, an anxiety um about um uh, colonial uh, guilt um, and um, sort of the aftermath of a, of a, a horrific colonial um, past. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the David Goldblum's um, quote at the beginning, I think, you know, uh, it's he says, you know, this is not my story, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, this, this is the story. It's a good story. It's a good story, but all the same, but this is not my story. And, and of course, it's bookended at the end with um, Dale Kerrigan saying, well, that was my story, um, who's like the yes. whitest person ever. Mm-hmm. Um, from the castle, yeah. So I think, you know, it's very clear that this it's a story told sort of about whiteness mm-hmm. in, in some sense and everything. And I think that's what was so, um, I don't know, just interesting. We can't know what the input is. Uh, cultural trusts like actual ideas are about exactly what is upsetting about the work or 
Oh, I, mean, th- I think you're being polite. <laughs> um, I mean, it's true, but their actions did sort of suggest that this yes. work was doing something. Of course. And they definitely said it was yeah. Australia. No, yeah. I mean, it was articulated that, you know, there's, I mean, we're certainly not speaking for all people mm. on the board and certainly not the entire Ian Potter Foundation, mm-hmm. who many of them have just been so... Um, uh, supportive of us and, and they've known what the project is mm-hmm. for and have voiced their support and, to let course. us know that they're not, you know, yeah. in, in. But, um, there, you know, there's certainly one or two powerful people within the organization that, that, um, took a front to the politics within the work, um, and particularly perhaps some of those narratives that you're talking mm-hmm. about. Um, so yeah, I do. I think it's like an interesting outcome. I mean, you, you, we made this work to ask some of those difficult questions and um, f- for it to be a provocation of sorts. And I, I agree that um, what has transpired is is sort of in some ways um, kind of very apt. I was thinking, you know, about a lot of these Australian films and Australian screen materials, you know, television shows might be sort of doing what you guys are trying to do, at least politically, but in a much mm, softer way, less provocative way, you know, yeah. um, because obviously that's the nature of your sampling art is to, to be that out there. But were there any films that you watched because you watched hundreds and hundreds of hours? Was there any narrative out there that kind of surprised you in its message that it was trying to challenge some kind of um, white national myth in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think so many. I mean, I think so many of the works that we use mm-hmm. are already mounting those critiques in amazing and really interesting and sophisticated ways. So sometimes we're like, you know, flipping the script on something or changing it, but quite often we're just actually taking sources and like their own critique and then using that and putting that in motion and combining it in the constellation with other sources that are doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean... My gosh, I mean, we look to um, films like Mystery Road as, like, you yeah. know, incredible films. And even just the um, uh, the the idea of um, sort of Australian Gothic itself <laughs> was um, one of the real starting points for us in thinking through this project. Um, we were fascinated by the way that, like, um, Australian films um, already sort of carry this idea um, of the horror within the landscape and, you know, with some sort of, like, um, other you know, national forms of horror cinema, often it's the house that's haunted, but I, we definitely feel that within Australian cinema it's the, the landscape itself, within Picnic at Hanging Rock it's the rock itself um, and the way that these... Yeah, and so, you know, trying to think through why is that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's Australian Gothic and the kind of theory that's developed around that, you know, tries to think where is this coming from, what does this suggest, this sense that the land is quite often pictured as foreboding and this malevolent force and, you know, maybe that is attached to cultural anxieties around unresolved things to do with history and, you know, the current kind of of, of climate and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. There's a, um, you know, quite a bit of writing on specifically Picnic and Hang Rock but on other forms of other Australian films Mm. that suggest that, you know, the Australian landscape is this, um, sonic landscape of horror where we're, you know all of the sounds are terrifying the silence is terrifying wind is terrifying but that it's a very very much a white settler kind of fear that that has driven that narrative and I think that that's really interesting in what you're trying to do is kind of say well yes it is and um, really explore that I was also interested because it's kind of thinking about genres 
that are present in your work and while you're sampling and so sort of using other films and other genres to build your own work. Terranalia kind of acts as like an eco-horror film um, in some ways and I wonder whether that's embedded, I mean, as you say, in all Australian narratives. Well, not all. I mean, that's a ridiculous kind of concept, but in so many of them. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly Long Weekend, um, the... Uh, film which actually was remade recently in 2008 but from the 70s um, such a key text oh my gosh it's it's like in terms of eco horror films that text is like maybe one of the pioneering or the pioneering film of eco horror like yeah. internationally and not just, yeah i was about to say not just within australia but internationally it's yeah. always referenced to have these two campers go away camping and then have the natural environment completely conspire against them and you know the guy gets attacked by a bird and you know like this structure of this film um, of Long Weekend was really a very strong conceptual inspiration on, on our idea to do a revenge fable. Absolutely. I mean, that's sort of where we, yeah, started to, to think of a narrative in which um, it's not just sort of minorities um, that are conspiring against sort of the, you know, the, the dominant, like, sort of heteronormative um, sort of white male figures, but... Um, you know, the environment, the land mm-hmm. itself, um, the animals that are also conspiring with them. Yeah, it's so amazing because it's, you know, people who are, are not um, locals or not from Australia don't maybe not don't think that about Australian landscape, but the fact that it's, you know, so powerful um, and used in your work is, mm-hmm. is really great. Even though I do think that internationally we have quite a reputation for, like, dangerous spiders, dangerous oh, that's snakes. that's actually. Dangerous, yeah. Like, a, you know, the land, you know, I mean, beyond that kind of, like, Australian Gothic, it's just, like, literally a fact that Australia has more poisonous snakes than, you know, any yeah. other country. Well, we recently were in Brisbane and we saw in a souvenir shop a, a um, beer cooler, is that what you call them? Oh, yeah. Um, and it had all around it, like, you know, illustrations of different, like, dangerous animals, like sharks and spiders and snakes. And then pictured on the bottom, like it was a gag, was um, Aussie blokes. And <laughs> it was kind of, like, both kind of funny and kind of terrifying <laughs> and kind of, like, summed up a lot of what we've been thinking about <laughs> in making Terra Nullius. I feel like that's exactly what you get from Terra Nullius. <laughs> this big narrative of, like, kick-ass women um, on motorbikes and, you know, just on the beach, just kind of revelling in this revenge that's being taken against the Australian male, mm-hmm. um, which is so great. I feel like there... Maybe I could have missed this because I've only seen it once and I really want to go back, but um, Deborah Lee Furness from Shane was... Not in Terranalias, or was she? Oh, did no. I miss her? You missed She's her. King. She is the. I mean, <laughs> okay. it's so great that you mention her because, I mean, obviously, in terms of uh, feminist revenge, fan, you know, revenge films um, and fantasies and fantasies, revenge <laughs> yeah. fantasies. Um, uh, yeah, the involving like you know a woman on a motorcycle, mm-hmm. like absolutely, she's she was the key inspiration and the movie shame for uh, the motorcycle uh, feminist sequence in Terranalius. And at the very end of Terranalius, she's the last person. She's sitting there on a motorbike, and uh, Kim from Kathy oh, Kim. Kath- from Kath and Kim, uh, is sitting on the back. Oh, okay. I was distracted by Kath or Kim. Or yeah, and she pulls okay. down her visor uh-huh. and then the motorcycles, they all go off. So, you know, so she's kind of concludes okay. that sequence. But you're totally right in pointing out that she desperately needed to be in the film. Yeah, so much. I love that movie. Um, yeah, that's true. Was there anything that you couldn't include that you just desperately wanted to? I mean, you are very outspoken about how this is a love letter to Australian mm-hmm. cinema, and I think all of your work is a love letter to all of the cinema that you sample and remix. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so was there anything that you just were desperate to include and couldn't? Um, I mean, there's some things that you imagine would be featured more than they are, you know, like I think of like a really complex text like Bad Boy Bobby, mm. um, which is a, just such an interesting, dark and strange bizarre film um which we only really sample audio from you know uh some smashing sounds but you know the the sense of that film uh and what what would you say i don't know i mean we caught up with a friend last night um who had flown to see it and um she was like saying you know how much she loved it and she was like where was strictly ballroom it's my favorite Australian film and i think it's a really good point like people just want to see imaged their favorite films and Mm. um but of course when it comes to this construction of a narrative um uh you know it's not it's not as easy as um imaging all those things so Sure. Yeah, I've had the same response to other, you know, other major remix works where you're like, oh, where is this, you know, super important thing that I that I know? But I guess that's not really the point of it, is it? Um, that you are kind of telling a narrative story. Um, I think it's a really good point, actually. I mean, it it's uh, we're, you know we're very very happy um, for for people to take whatever it is that they take from our work, but for us personally, the the sort of um, uh, engagement, which is sort of a sample spotting engagement, is sort of like for us personally, like the least interesting. Yeah, it's it's not it's not you know it's important as the context around everything. And yeah, just from where we're coming from. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's um, that's fair enough. You, I guess, you assemble all of these samples and use them for a purpose, and so that's obviously that's really key that that's going to be kind of the most important thing. Yeah, no, but then there's also just heaps of stuff that ends up on the cutting room floor, like, you know, so much, so, so much. many more sequences, you know, <laughs> like twice as many sequences maybe um, that we actually develop and so much wastage in our process. Mm-hmm. We really, you know, we just develop everything and then we really try and, like, hone it down from there. So, um, yeah, whole sequences that are developed that don't make it in and, and that kind of thing too. Well, if it means anything, I really wanted to see more. <laughs> so maybe you could do that again another day. Or maybe not. <laughs> I'm not going to pressure you. Yeah, maybe like, uh, I don't know, behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, We have to wrap it up now. I think I've gone on a little bit long because I could just keep talking about this. But um, I wanted to say that people should go and see this and it's really important for Australians. Not just Australians, but I think everyone. Also un-Australians. Yeah, also un-Australians. I mean, hopefully they will go and see it. You know, I feel like the expectation is that... Maybe it's for the un-Australians. Yeah, hopefully they get something out of it. But, um, yeah, it's it's really important work um, and it's so great to finally see it. I've been excited about this since whenever it was announced. Um, So, anyway, congratulations again. Thank you so much, Eloise. Thanks. Soda Jerk's Terra Nullius is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until the 1st of July. You can see it there. At Senses of Cinema, we do our best to bring you the most interesting, provocative writing on cinema from across the globe, highlighting films from the past and present to bring you exciting new talent to your attention and to explore fresh perspectives on films from the past. But it's true that bringing this journal to you each quarter is an expensive proposition. So we have now established a Patreon account to help with meeting the costs of keeping Senses of Cinema running. We have a whole range of goodies for patrons that subscribe to our account. We're offering newsletters, including fresh takes on cinema from our editors and curated dossiers from our back catalogue. 
If you subscribe at the higher level, you get all the extras and an ad-free version of this very podcast so you don't have to be interrupted by me every month. Plus, you'll get an additional bonus segment of the podcast each month out of our gratitude to your commitment to Senses of Cinema. It means that you'll contribute to our ultimate goal at Senses, and that's to be in a position to pay our fantastic writers for all the hard work they all do to keep the journal as terrific as it is. To become a patron of Senses of Cinema, visit sensesofcinema.com, click on our Patreon link, and enjoy the benefits of supporting those who bring the journal to you throughout the film year. Now, following on from our discussion of Annihilation, we wanted to address the decision made by Paramount in releasing the film. Following test screenings in the States, audiences suggested the film was too intellectual, that it was too difficult for mainstream audiences. And as a result of this, producer David Ellison became nervous about the film's financial prospects and suggested changes to the film, including altering the ending and softening Natalie Portman's character. Both the director Alex Garland and the producer Scott Rudin refused these changes, and that prompted the decision to release the film theatrically only in the US and in China, you know, one of the, the bigger markets, I suppose. But then for all of the other territories, including the UK and Australia, moving the film to Netflix everywhere else. It's a decision that's been alternately perceived as heralding the death of intelligent cinema, but also a savvy business model for the future. So, Eloise, what side are you coming down on in this debate over this, this, this question over theatrical release or streaming exhibition? Well, if you heard the first segment, I think we all know where I stand, which is that films absolutely deserve a cinema release. And this film in particular yes. um, does deserve a cinema release. I mean, you know, just from an essential perspective, film is so visual at the moment um, and trying to do things to get people to come back to the cinema. I mean, you know, for decades, film has been battling home video formats or home viewing formats. And so by being visual, by being like this completely um, beautiful world constructed with CGI, it deserves a big screen. Yeah. So there's that. But also, um, I mean, it's, it's cinema as a form and so it deserves to be seen on screen. And then there's that idea that because or test audiences said it was too intellectual, like it, Paramount thought, oh, well, we're, we're not going to make any money with this, which is just depressing, basically. Yes. You know, there are so many things in this world that are contributing to a overall dumbing down and this is just another... another so, so for you, this is pants. like the death knell. This is the... This is... The, the flag that suggests that something is about to go belly up? Well, I don't think about to, but I think is just contributing to more and more that is already going belly up. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we this has caused enough of an uproar that Paramount won't do the same thing again or that studios won't do this again. Um, but we've already seen it happen with a number of films. Yeah. Um, for instance, Mudbound. Yes. Um, which came out late last year, straight onto Netflix in a number of territories, including Australia. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is, I mean, Netflix has so much power in distribution. And um, unfortunately, I think that maybe there will be films going straight there. But I mean, it just isn't fair, basically, particularly if the original deal was to have it exhibited theatrically. Great. Where are you on this? Well, I do wonder if one of the reasons why uh, things are getting released more and more uh, straight on streaming services is because 
some of these streaming services like Home Box Office are creating films that have a cinematic quality about them. And so there's that aligning of, of that sensibility, that aesthetic about it. But um, I was also thinking about the issue of um, the age-old issue to do with cinema and gunning and the like with plot uh, and watching film for plot as opposed to watching film for spectacle. Yeah. So we're talking about the idea of spectacle here yes. and going to see things that are actually made for wonderment uh, as opposed to watching things for plot. And so I guess... Uh, a film like Annihilation really engages with that and, you know, why it um, invariably has been released straight home. It's, uh, yeah, it's... I, I, and I find that, I mean, I think the, the this issue with Annihilation is a really interesting one because it marries, and we don't get too many of these films, to be honest. Christopher Nolan's kind of made a whole career out of it, but, you know, it's one of those films that marries intellectual rigour with spectacle and you know we are starting to see almost a, a division between those those elements in cinema now we tend to get kind of incredibly aesthetic wonderful you know spectacular cinema which looks great on a big screen but there's nothing particularly intellectual intellectually rigorous about it and then we have you know the kind of art cinema or the intellectual film that that would maybe get a smaller release but annihilation is one of those weird instances where it's both and and you know as to our earlier discussion about the the experience of seeing annihilation on tv like i still loved that film but the one thing that it did lack was its enormity it is like watching you know something as as visually splendid as 2001 on a tiny weeny little box like you know i can still enjoy and appreciate the film but i need to be overwhelmed by those images and and i didn't get that experience so it, it's kind of an interesting thing where I'm starting to wonder whether we're going to get a stratification of of cinema where purely the multiplex is going to be for the big, you know, don't want to generalise too much, but the big dumb film that looks amazing and then the stuff that doesn't rely on spectacle but does, as you're suggesting, rely on plot or some sort of intellectual engagement being shoved onto smaller screens because you only want to see big things on a big screen. But, I mean, you can't rely on, as you say, like the big dumb film that looks amazing, right? Like the the talk is that one of the reasons Paramount kind of freaked out about Annihilation is that they had um, failures last year with Ghost yeah. in the Shell and yeah. Baywatch. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was reading a, an article that Guy Lodge wrote about this kind of, about Annihilation and this deal and said that um, Netflix's creative instincts have been called into question. And I have two responses to that, which is, like, why are so-called creative instincts held to such an impossible standard these days? Like, art is always about experimentation. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, why not call Paramount's um, creative instincts into question if they're putting all of this money and effort into something like Baywatch? And then, oh, forgive me, I could be incorrect as to where this came from, but, you know, that, that idea that the critics killed Baywatch yeah. um, because the critics, um, you know, this this overarching critical mass said that Baywatch was a terrible film. Yeah. Um, the, the same thing happened with Mother, I think, mm. which I, and I understand that that's divisive, but there was this delight in hanging it on Mother wasn't Mother garbage. I, I've on record as saying I actually yeah. really loved it. But... And what's fascinating to me is that Mother does come into this conversation and, and that it was a, a box office failure, which I find quite stunning because... I feel like everyone was yelling about it. So how could it be a failure? Um, but, but, you know, maybe it was. But still the fact that 
that I guess we have films that just make so much money and now have studios lost sight of the kind of the mid-budget, um, mid-box office picture yeah. um, in some ways. And that's a real shame um, because we're going to inevitably lose something um, because independent cinema can't can't always pick that up. Yeah. I mean, are, are we looking at Netflix as being kind of, is it the dumping ground now? Is this is this where kind of intellectual cinema goes? Is is that what we're now starting to see? Where you take a film like Mudbound, where you say, "Well, that's not going to make much money because who's going to go and see it?" So, TV is is that where we're going? It's easier, you know. The straight to Netflix is like the straight to DVD equivalent, but okay. it's easier to put something straight to Netflix. Um, because you can do it without planning yeah. at all, more or less. Whereas with a DVD, you at least need to uh, manufacture certain things. Um, and so maybe it's it's a bad sign because it can be done without much forethought, really. Mm. It's true. Um, just going back to the cinema releases as well, I was wondering whether uh, if Annihilation, uh, in its current form had been made by someone like Christopher Nolan mm. and had a release like that because a film like uh, Interstellar, which is a difficult film, but did well. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if, you know, you attach his name to it, people go in with a certain expectation. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So that has something to do with it. See, I, I, but, and I guess almost the counter to that is he, Alex Garland gets Annihilation off the back of Ex Machina, which is just as intellectual, just as rigorous, just as fascinating and just as difficult in some ways mm. as Annihilation is. And so th there's like, oh, my God, you've done a film that's kind of like the previous one and we loved the first one because we weren't expecting it. Yeah. But now you've given us something, you know, in some ways at least intellectually similar and now we don't like it anymore. And it's like... And now what we're, did, we're shocked yeah, we didn't... Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you expect if you got somebody who's got that history? You wanted something like Easy, but... You know, I, that's why I don't get it that I would that they basically gave him that film on the basis of the success of the previous one. It is odd, isn't it? Because well, the thing about Ex Machina, it's sort of like the little film that could, yeah. You know, yeah. uh, whereas we've gone really big with the next one, so there's yeah. there's that as well. We've got sort of from something that was a three hander to this cosmic thing. True. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, now, Craig, you've got a history of working at video stores, so so can you give us a bit of a what was your experience of of the way that a kind of direct-to-DVD or a, a kind of video store approach to accessing content? And is that shifting, changing? Do you see differences or similarities between the way that people are engaging with stuff on, on a Netflix platform? Uh, look, I think there's always been a, um, a culture of seeing trailers and, and saying, I'm going to wait until it comes to DVD. And some of that has to do with this doesn't look like a film that attract, that appeals to me, but I'm sort of interested. I'm just not going to um, fork out money for it. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to films that, you know, look like they really need to be watched on a big screen yeah. because of spectacle and the like, or because of how they're released in terms of platform. Um, I guess the thing that um, I mourn about the the death of the video store is curatorship yep. and self curatorship. We were talking about this yesterday, and and how uh, you can spend a couple of hours uh, in a video store, and I see this all the time. People who spend half a day there just going through like sixty five thousand films, or some of them anyway. And um, 
and just deciding for themselves what they would like to watch and then coming up to the counter and saying, you know, I'd really, I like this sort of film. What do you recommend on, on the basis of that? That sort of thing. So uh, culturally, I think there's something that's been lost there because we don't have that with Netflix at the moment. Yeah. We don't have that sort of range to be able to self-curate. Yeah, definitely. And that, that question, you know, that idea of asking someone who works in the video store, you know, people might say, well, now we have the internet, so people can just type some stuff into Google um, or go, you know, or go to some forum and be like, I like these films, what should I watch? But the the imbalance of voices on the internet is so extreme yeah. that you're never going to get that same, like, caring and careful Curation. Yeah, yeah. And you don't Net, have the dialogue. Netflix, of course, no. you know, relies on an algorithm. You know, it's literally like you watch this, therefore you're going to watch that. It took me so long to find Annihilation. Oh, it's ridiculous. I had yeah. to, yeah, I scrolled for minutes. I think I, yeah. Anyway, I was I couldn't do you do the search thing because it was on my TV. But anyway, it was like not obvious, and I'm like, this was released yesterday. Where yeah. is it? And the, the peculiar so thing is, don't care that, either. I mean, you know, it, it's easy to get. The sink in the boot to some of these streaming services. There are advantages, like you know, something like Okja that came out uh, on Netflix fairly quickly. That would have taken, you know, the, the fairly traditional release strategy is the major places, New York, for example, would get Okja, but other territories like here in Melbourne, it might be three months before we get that. It's already had the yeah. discussion. There's already been kind of all of the talk. We miss out on all of that dialogue and that, that interaction over that film. And I got access to Oakja straight off, and that's terrific and amazing. So I appreciate that. But at the same time, Netflix doesn't care about giving any sort of fanfare to these films. Annihilation is, you know, I know it's only March, but you know, Annihilation is probably the best film I've seen this year so far. Only three months' worth, but it's, I loved it. But as you say... How on earth do you find it? I only find it because I'm keyed into this and I'm I'm looking for it. I've I've read the, you know the the kind of talk about it, so I'm looking for it. But if I didn't, I'm not finding that at all. There's no fanfare. There's no direction towards it. There's no big kind of publicity about the fact that they've got this incredible film. I mean, Paramount aren't advertising it because they've sold it. Yeah, and. Netflix aren't advertising it because it's not their original content, and so they they put their you know marketing budget onto their original content, yeah. and so basically it's it's a lost film. Well, I mean it's not that dire, um, but it's it's it doesn't have that same exposure that classical release strategies would give it. Yeah, and I I, I wonder whether maybe what we're looking at is a kind of shift in in viewership where increasingly studios that are really hungry for the tentpole film will start looking askance at their smaller product and start re-strategizing with some of those smaller films and finding different outlets for it. So rather than it moving to an art house cinema where maybe it won't make that much money, it's better to, to have the the larger deal with the streaming service where they can recoup some of that money. The, the the one thing that makes me a bit nervous is are we then getting to the point where we say, well, maybe those um, kind of more art house, more intellectual films don't really have a place in the landscape. Um, and you might go for, say, a film like Lady Bird that you could see is a little bit intellectual but still has a broader appeal, but films like mother or annihilation that can be difficult and thorny and don't immediately kind of necessarily you know embrace you 
that those innovations in cinema start to get completely lost. That was a cheery thought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess we can just hope that they're not lost and maybe people like us just need to get smarter about watching things. Yeah. And, and, you know, the upside is, and I, I read an interview with Alex Garland, who was saying that obviously he made this for theatrical distribution and exhibition, and he's upset about the fact that it has been denied that. The upside is a lot of people, hopefully, will start to get to see it. And maybe there will be a sort of almost like the, mm-hmm. the video store mentality where you start talking to people who stumble across the film on Netflix and then it kind of develops a word-of-mouth community rather than something that might be publicity-based or necessarily even revenue-generating. Mm. But I would certainly hope a film like Annihilation passes into some kind of grand recognition for the things that it's doing. Mm. I hope so. I mean, it's got a fan community already from from the books. Yes. So, so hopefully it does, you know, gets out there. And it's certainly got, like, no, mostly kind of really solid reviews. So you would hope that it's not going to be buried. But, you know, I can't not think about what's the next film coming down the pike and what's going to happen to that. Well, I think um, the I, you might have just been referring to Anni- the Annihilation sequel, but the next film that's going straight to Netflix that's kind of a big unexpected one is Scorsese's The Irishman, <laughs> right? A yes. $140 million film. <laughs> Directed by Martin Scorsese. With Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. Right, and because Silence didn't make enough money. I mean, I don't know what they were expecting it to do. This weird movie with an intense, like, Catholic theme. Um, But anyway, um, you know, that's a real big shame as well. Yeah. And when you start thinking about how much money they are writing off, they've They've put the money in for that film for the Irishman, and then they say, well, we sell this off for $50 Oh, well, cut our losses. It's only Scorsese. Like, it's mind-blowing to me. Mm. They sound a little bit like a a studio that's in panic mode, like they're just doing whatever they can because they did have those high-profile failures. Yeah, maybe they are. I mean, hopefully we haven't had any evidence of this, but hopefully they will make some smarter decisions and put money put less money into big, huge blockbusters and try and make them maybe more cheaply or something rather than just completely um, thinking that they can keep doing the same thing and maybe the audiences will change because that's not the way that you run a studio. No. And historically has not been the way that anyone has. So I don't know. Hmm. Um, I guess one last thing, jumping back into Annihilation, one more time, the idea that the title is what it is, and that it, uh, it goes... <laughs> I see goes, where you're going with this. <laughs> goes straight to Netflix, uh, is sort of interesting, and the, that idea of annihilation of cinema as well yeah. is something that's been around for so long. I mean, like Jean-Luc Godard and yeah, his, yeah. his whole yeah. prediction of the death of cinema, and so we live in hope. Yes. Oh, my yeah. God, Jennifer Jason Lee's The New Season Sontag. We'll just get, <laughs> yes. rather than that article, we'll just link to a gif of Jennifer Jason Lee saying, it's annihilation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you've got your own take on this kind of really complex and emerging debate, I suppose, head to our Facebook page at censorsofcinema.com and leave a comment on our episode thread. Each month, Mark and I and our third chair will share with you a highlight from the current month. 
something, be it a film, television, or otherwise screen-related material, that resonated powerfully with us, and we hope you can find meaningful. Now it's time for something that lit up our screen worlds this March. Craig? Ah, oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Eloise. One of the films that I watched this week, returned to and just loved, particularly in this political climate, was um, Born Yesterday. <gasps> <laughs> with Judy Holliday and um, Roderick Crawford in an incredible role. I mean, like just mouthfuls of dialogue that guy has to has to get through, and he just eats the scenery and does it so well. And it's his his bombast just reminded me so much of Trump and the whole themes of the film as well in terms of this uh, attempted corruption of America and the values it's built on. I thought, wow, this is the film that needs to be watched again. That's great. So that was great. And the other thing that I have uh, also enjoyed this week, just yesterday, was the um, on Stan, the final episode of uh, the um, RuPaul All-Stars season of Drag Race. <laughs> and I won't tell you who won, but it was so much fun. And it was some really original TV. It's been wonderful seeing this show go from strength to strength yeah. over, over 10 seasons. And now with the All-Stars, uh, it's really innovative television and uh, it's lovely to see how many people are engaging with it. Yeah. Mm. And, Eloise, something amazing happened with RuPaul. RuPaul got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame this morning or Yay. yesterday. Very exciting. Um, so it's great. Um, you know, I think it is an acknowledgement of the role of that show and how innovative it is yeah. um, on TV and what it's done um, for communities and just for, for television itself. Yeah, and his, his um, multi-platform contribution to uh, entertainment industry. Yeah. 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 Um, it's great. excellent. Fantastic. Mm. Um, I, this month, have been really into both BPM, um, which, which I think released as beats per minute or 120 yeah, beats 120, per yeah. minute, um, Robin Campillo's film from last year um, that did screen at MIF, although I didn't see it. I saw it uh, at the French Film Festival just last week and it's screening at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival next week. Um, so it's getting, and then I think getting a, a small release in May in Australia. So it's really wonderful. I mean, that film itself is excellent, but what I wanted to, uh, identify in this segment was the score by a guy called Arno Rebotini. Um, possibly sounds more French than that. But anyway, um, so the score as it is with the film is wonderful because it's kind of, it's um, engaging and enlivening, but it's also um, really chilled out and has this wonderful um, effect on the film's moments where it kind of um, cuts to either um, sex scenes, bedroom scenes, or like love scenes, um, scenes of grief, and scenes of uh, dancing in a nightclub, and these bodies, and kind of has this really interesting commentary on um, scenes that both seem as though they're a dance and also a protest. Um, so I love the score, and then I um, have been listening to it while running in the last couple of weeks, and it's so good. It's just kind of like makes you feel part of it's a bit techno and um, can just get you really excited, and then it also just makes you feel really amazing. Anyway, so I love the score. Um, I mean, the film is, is amazing, and I really recommend checking it out. It's incredible. Yeah, I saw um, it at MIF last year. It's Fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. the performances are brilliant. Yeah. Um, and But the score itself was really special. Yes. Mark? Well, this month, because I'm self-indulgent, I'm doing two. Um, <laughs> and the first, first thing is uh, 
a short film from Taika Waititi, who's a filmmaker that I really love. I think he's incredible. I still think very fondly of Thor Ragnarok, which was such a surprise to me. I thought I was going to think that it was garbage and it was just so much fun. But I watched one of his very early short films called Two Cars, One Night. Um, so this is before he actually really starts making you know, feature films, before he moves on to what we do in the shadows, that sort of stuff. And it is just this really beautiful, simple story of two boys in one car, and they're both about you know, maybe nine or ten, and this slightly older girl who's about 12 who's sitting in the other car while their parents are essentially at the pub. And it's just about this little communication between these boys. And it kind of, it starts out looking like they might be ready to fight. Um, and then it ends up being this really sort of sweet connection between these kids while they wait for their parents to actually, you know, stop drinking and come and take them home. <laughs> so narratively, it's really sweet. But just in terms of the way that it's shot, it's really an incredible looking film shot in black and white. Um, I think that it is up on YouTube that you might just be able to find it yourself um, to, if you do a quick search, and I highly recommend it. So that that some, was something that I really, really adored this week. Um, and the other thing is, you know, we did talk about the Oscars last time around. They have happened. Things won things. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I was happy and sometimes I was sad. Laurie Metcalf ripped off, lady. But I think the biggest moment, for me, was Frances McDormand's speech when she won for uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, a great performance, a bit indifferent to the film, but she gave this incredible speech, and I just really wanted to kind of appreciate the fact that she stood up there, um, acknowledged the women, which was wonderful, but that she left that speech with a phrase that sent everybody scurrying, where she concludes her speech just by saying two words, inclusion writer. And because nobody knows what an inclusion writer is, everybody has now researched this, discovered that, in fact, it is a, a kind of a stipulation that people with considerable power in Hollywood can include in their contracts that would suggest parity and diversity in employment. And that is something that if you're a really kind of high-profile star, you can say, we demand an inclusion writer, and that enforces diversity in that workplace. I think that she did a fantastic job of just setting out this phrase that nobody knew and now everybody knows about it. And I think that that also creates a level of pressure on people to start doing the right thing and having an inclusion writer into their um, into their contracts as they sign to uh, participate in a film. And that was a damn fine idea. Well done, Francis McDormand. On the Oscars, uh, the In Memoriams, it was uh, such a shame to see that Dorothy Malone wasn't included. Yes. <clears throat> a few months ago, oh, when she passed away, she was my um, my thing of the month to acknowledge her and her screen roles and her contribution to history. Um, and she won Best Supporting Actress. And so it's just so devastating that she wasn't in the In Memoriam. Um, someone else who wasn't in the in memoriam was Peggy Cummins, and I'm so angry about it. Mm. So that was really upsetting. Um, Hollywood is kind of horrible when it comes to things like that. My one of the most glaring of recent years was Joan Leslie, who died a few years ago, I think, and she wasn't included in the segment, but she played the lead, the lead female role, I think, in um, Hollywood Canteen, which was that that piece of 
both war propaganda, propaganda for the American war effort, and also Hollywood propaganda for their own industry. And I couldn't believe that something so embedded in um, celebrating itself as the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences would forget about that like piece of propaganda that they made in the 1940s and then didn't include her. So they do make huge mistakes sometimes and it's very sad. Yes, it's, uh, it's a shame that they don't respect their own history as much, mm. enough. Yeah. Mm. But we do. We do. We do. We do. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for joining us this month on the Senses of Cinema podcast and thanks to Eloise Ross and to our fantastic third chair this month, Craig Martin. Thanks also to our technical producer, the brilliant Troy Mori, who makes us sound less like genetically modified bears and more like actual humans. Thanks also to Swinburne University for the use of their recording studio here in beautiful Hawthorne, Melbourne. I'm Mark Freeman, and thanks for listening to the Senses of Cinema podcast. We'll speak with you again next month. <laughs>